Well, it is good to see you all. Um, um, it, it's amazing how God in his providence um, brings some passages to encourage us. You know, I think today our sermon is discerning truth in error. We're coming back to First John. And I think that is a very opportune time to think about our Bible reading, right? How do we discern truth in error? So you can open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and we're reading verses 1 through 6. Before we get there, I'm going to have a little historical fact here for you. Eureka is a word that, Greek word that some of us use, I don't know, um, I know that in Brazil we do use it. Um, it's a Greek word that means I have found it. It's became a very um, common, and it's like a slogan for thousands in California in the 1800s. The gold prospectors, the gold rush of the, um, the 1800s, it summed up everything, every treasure hunter dream, um, and expressed the thrill of finding gold. James Marshall was the first to discover this precious metal in 1848, and then the 49ers uh, who followed him, the term Eureka meant instant riches, early retirement, and a life of comfort and ease. But there would be prospectors quickly learned that not everything that appeared to be gold actually was. Riverbeds and rock quarries could be full of golden specks that were nevertheless entirely worthless. They were the fool's gold, it was iron pyrite. It, the miners had to be careful to distinguish between the real thing and their, the fool's gold because their livelihood depended on it. Experienced miners could usually distinguish the pyrite from the gold simply by looking at it, but in some cases, the distinction was not so clear. So they developed tests to discern what was genuine and what was not. One test involved biting into the rock, which was in question, because real gold is softer than the human tooth. I mean, you don't break your teeth. <laughs> Whereas fool's gold is harder. The second test involved scraping the rock with a piece of white stone, such as ceramic. The true gold will leave a yellow streak behind it, whereas the residue left by the fool's gold is a greenish black. In either case, the miners relied on the test to authenticate its fine findings. Both his fortune and his future depended on the results. Now, Pastor John MacArthur sees this analogy here um, that, spiritually speaking, Christians often find themselves in a similar position as the California gold rushers of the mid-1800s. When confronted with various doctrines and religious teachings, all of which claim to be true, believers must be able to tell those that are biblically and, and uh, biblically sound from those they are not. As was true in the gold rush, just because something glitters, it doesn't mean that it is good. Christians need to be equally weary of a spiritual fool's gold. They must not accept something as true without first testing it to see if it meets God's approval. If it fails the test, Christians should discard as false and warn others also. 
But if it passes the test in keeping it with the truth of God's word, believers can embrace it and endorse it wholeheartedly. California gold prospectors would cry, Eureka, I have found it. Only when they found the true gold. So when it comes to spiritual things, Christians should be careful to do the same. In our text today, we'll be encouraged to put to test to exercise this spiritual discernment and to make a distinction between truth and error. All right, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out of the world By this, we'll know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. But by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we come before you knowing that we live in a world that has so many voices, so many teachings and philosophies that wants to influence the way we, we live, the way we do business, the way we raise children, the way we do marriage, and the way to be saved. Lord, but your word is true and it helps us to discern. And I pray that even as we study, may we find instruction on how can we discern truth from error. Help us, God. You know that we are um, easy to um, be distracted. And I just pray, Father, that you help us to focus so we may learn and find comfort in the fact that you give us this ability to differentiate truth from error. Oh, help us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Right, in in our study, in this encouraging letter, we have seen already five signs that give assurance for the believers that are doubting um, their salvation. And so those that have been saved by faith and have entered the family of God, they can have assurance. And the apostle John has been walking us through this, um, some of these signs and these indications, these tests, so to speak. In chapter one, you will remember that we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the Holy Spirit. That is the relationship with the God test, the test of a relationship with God. In chapter two, we, we've seen that those that belong to God, they walk in holiness, they walk in righteousness. This is what we call the moral test. Then the other half of chapter 2 in verses 20 to 21, we'll see a doctrinal test. 
those that belong to God, they will remain in the truth. They will not be dissuaded by error. So actually what our chapter is doing is kind of reaffirming what John already said in chapter 2 about this doctrinal test, this differentiation of truth and error. Um, our, the other one, the other test was the love for the believers. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 talked about the, this loving fellowship that Christians love each other. They love to be with one another. And this, this kind of love, it's not just a, a, a love of, of mouth, of word only, but it's a love that is manifested in word and in deed. So if you look at verse 17 from chapter 3, it says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That is one of the tests that we can, we can say that someone is genuinely a believer because they don't just love by word, in their mouth, they do, they act on that love. And lastly, we saw that the, um, another part of the doctrinal trust is the assurance from objective truth in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we last saw in chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, that sometimes our hearts accuses us, and we have doubts, we have questions but God has given us his spirit and his word to assure that it's not our conscience that is the lead of, of our salvation. It is God who is greater than our hearts that gives us this assurance. And now we're moving forward here to say that um, in verses 24, he says that the one who believes in him, who believes in God, he has his spirit. And now John is moving to say, we do, not, we do not believe every spirit. We believe in Christ. So the hinge for this passage really is in verse 23 here. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he's commanded us. And we know this, that he abides in us by his spirit. So believing in Christ also helps us not to believe every spirit. It is important to observe that the command to believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is followed by the prohibition do not believe every spirit. John will speak here in verse 1 of the need for a spiritual discernment. We need to this discernment. It is much a command, just as the command to love our brothers and sisters was followed by the prohibition, do not love the world and anything in the world in chapter 2. We also have this command to not believe every spirit. Uh, the commentator John Stott puts it well when he says, neither Christian believing nor Christian loving is to be indiscriminate. In particular, Christian faith is not to be mistaken by credulity. We don't believe everything that is told us. Christian faith is not to be mistaken by credulity. True faith examines its object before reposing confidence in it. We need to know exactly what we believe. 
So John tells his readers to test the spirit, to see whether they are from God or not. Every prophet, or in our days, every teacher, someone that is bringing doctrine, is the mouthpiece or spokesman of some spirit. True prophets are from the spirit of God, as in verse 2 will say. Who is in verse 2 is called the spirit of truth, verse 6. The false prophets are the spirit of falsehood and the spirit of the Antichrist, as in verse 3 says. So I want to make it clear to you that behind every teaching, every philosophy that we listen, there is a spirit. Behind each spirit, um, either God or the devil. Before we can trust any spirits, we must test them. It is their origin that matters. And that really helps us to, to understand why in the world we have so many religions, so many philosophies for understanding man. The Apostle John assumed that even the humblest Christian possessed the right of private judgment. Why is that he's giving this instruction to the believers? Because he's saying, you can test this. You can know this. You can differentiate the reformers believed that um, every believer has the capacity to have these, apply this objective test that, is, that John is going to give us in the next verse. The term translated to test in the present imperative is the Greek verb of dokmazo. It's a, a term that is used for a, a metallurgist, someone that works with metals to assess like the gold diggers, right, to assess that metal to see if it was genuine or not. John's use of the present tense here indicates that the believers are to continually test these spirits to see whether they are from God or not. Contrary to the view of some, this command has nothing to do with personally confronting demons or performing exorcisms. You know, I, I remember um, watching, you know, you watch the TV sometimes and you see these uh, Churches where they're expelling demons and, 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 and doing this crazy stuff. That has nothing to do with test the spirits. Uh, God does not call us to be having conversation with demons. He is warning us about the teaching. He's warning us about the teaching that has some spiritual evil behind it. Instead, Christians are to continually evaluate, to see, to hear and, and read to determine if it originated from the Spirit of God or alternately from demons. The only reliable way to test any teaching is to measure it against what God has revealed in his infallible written word. Everything he wanted us to know, what was true or not, was the gold standard. The only way we can know when something is wrong is when we know the original, right? When you... You talk to people how they know that uh, um, a piece of money, it is not a, a correct, it's not a, a legitimate one. It's by analyzing what the true, real money is. Then you know what a fake is. The reason for this need to test the spirit is now given. The Apostle John says, test the spirits because there are many false prophets that have gone out. The reference may be general, just to false teachers 
Maybe they're coming as missionaries or ambassadors of the false doctrines there in the first century. But it is a reference to, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 18, uh, Apostle John already said this. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were, have been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that would be shown that they are, they all are not of us. Now you see here, John is saying that these false prophets, these antichrists, people that are teaching false doctrines, they would not stand the sound teaching of the scripture. They would not stand to listen to the true words of God being preached, and they left the church. And that was an indication that they were never part of the church to begin with. Now, I want to go beyond to say that these many false prophets that have gone out of the world, Satan does not merely want to oppose the church. He wants to deceive her. In keeping with his fraudulent schemes, his minions have infiltrated denominations, churches, and Christian schools and institutions and organizations resulting in compromise and error. Satan not only develops lies that directly deny biblical truth, but also subtle, often sabotaging the truth by mixing it with error. You see, it is not just a clear, outright lie. It's just a lot of truth with a little bit of a lie, with a little bit mixed in with error. That's Satan's strategy. Truth mixed with error is usually far more effective and far more destructive than a straightforward contradiction of the truth. I cannot even enumerate the amount of times that I'm counseling and that I'm having to, to deal really with error that people have believed from philosophies, from uh, a, a faulty view of man, a faulty view of God. Because they, it's that little truth mixed in with a lie. Those who trust everything they read from a Christian bookstore or hear on a Christian radio or television are prime targets for doctrinal deception. After all, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen to 15, he said, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So Satan masquerades his lies as truth. He does not always wage war openly against the gospel. He is much more likely to attack the church by infiltrating her walls with subtle error. He uses the Trojan horse scheme. You probably guys are familiar with the Trojan horse story, right? How um, the Greeks won that war and they infiltrated the city with this gift of a beautiful wooden horse and inside they had warriors. So they entered the city and they destroyed the city. So that is the technique. They infiltrate, Satan infiltrates the church with this you know, gift, this beautiful, you know, attractive preachers and with compelling speeches. But 
in deep inside they're full of deception for destruction. He uses this Trojan horse scheme by placing his false teachers in the church where they can secretly introduce destructive heresies, as 2 Peter 2 warns us. He puts his lies in the mouth of someone who claims to speak for Jesus Christ. In this way, the devil disguises falsehood as truth, making that which is evil to look good, to look right. Jesus warned his disciples of these false prophets, and so did the apostles. How about we open our, our Bibles to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20. Um, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. We just read this passage earlier today in Equipping Hour. Paul is giving instructions to the elders in Ephesus. And he's warning them. He's telling them. Acts chapter 20, verses 28. It says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which God has purchased with his own blood. Be on guard. Why? I know that after my departure, when Paul left, he said, savage wolves, he calls them savage wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. From among the church, from within the church, these people would arise. Second Peter 2, 1, you don't need to open there, but he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as they will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So dear brothers and sisters, we need to have this discernment because it is everywhere. These false teachers are everywhere. Their false doctrines are everywhere. They're subtle. We need this discernment. And still today, there are many voices clamoring for our attention, many cults gaining widespread popularity. TV shows about the Bible that has a lot of truth on it. And then you look, well, what is that deception? Some of them claim a special revelation. Oh, well, we, we heard from God. But it's not in the Bible. Well, we heard from, directly from him. You hear that a lot. Some of them claim a special revelation or inspiration to authenticate their particular doctrine. There is a need for a spiritual discernment. For many are too gullible and exhibit naive readiness to credit messages and teachings which support, which purport to come from the spirit of, uh, of God, but it comes from the world. So we, we need to be careful of this tolerance to false doctrine. Moving on, we see then that John does not leave us just with that need. He is saying, well, we need to be prepared. We need to discern, to test the spirits. Then he gives us a method. How then can we discern? Verses 2 and 3, it says, by this you will know the spirit of God. There is a way that you can know that every 
spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confesses Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. From the command and the need to test, John gives them a method on how we ought to exercise this spiritual discernment. The origin of the inspiring spirit might be discerned from the teaching of the prophet through whom it speaks. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. By this acknowledgement, he's meant that it's not merely a recognition of his identity, but a profession of faith in Jesus openly and boldly as the incarnate Lord. But we know that even evil and unclean spirits recognized the deity of Jesus during his ministry. We know that. It was not just an acknowledgement of his identity, right? You, if you read the, the, the Gospels, you will see many times that the demons will say, you were the son of the living God. They knew who Christ was. But no, they knew him. They did not acknowledge him. The Spirit of God, on the other hand, always honors the Son of God. Jesus thought that is the Holy Spirit a particular ministry, both to testify and to glorify him. I want to draw your attention to John 15, 26, when Jesus is talking about, let's, let's go there. I think it is helpful for us to see here that this ministry, particular ministry of the Holy Spirit, was promised by Jesus that he would refer to what he would do. Um, John 15, 26. Jesus is talking about the ministry of the Spirit or the Helper. Verse 26 says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth. That's what John calls him, right? The Spirit of Truth. Who proceeds from the Father, he will testify. He will testify about who? About me, Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is the one that testifies us, and will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Then um, skip to chapter sixteen, verse thirteen and, and fifteen. Jesus comforts them and says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's a lot of things that Jesus wanted to teach them, but yet he knew that they weren't able to take it. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So really the, the role of the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to disclose to the believer, the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he does. So moving on here. This spirit of truth reveals to us the person of Jesus Christ. The precise words of this test should be carefully noted. Probably the phrase should read, Jesus Christ, 
Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. The confession is that the man Jesus is himself none other than the incarnate Christ or Son. The perfect tense here um, says he came, he come, he has come, compares with the present tense of 2 John 7, seems to emphasize that the flesh assumed by the Son of God in the incarnation has become his permanent possession. Now, I really want you to see this. Um, there was a, a false doctrine going on in John's days that they believed that Jesus was born a man like everyone else. He was not God, but in the moment that the Holy Spirit rested on him, that's when the divinity became part of Jesus. And then at the moment that Jesus' death, that was a separation between the two and he was just a man again. But that is further from the truth. This, what this verse is saying is that he has come as God and as man. Jesus Christ, he has come in the flesh. And he is still both God and man to this day. He's ascended to heaven and he is with God the Father. Far from coming upon Jesus at the baptism and leaving him before the cross, as an early heresy claimed, that Christ actually came in the flesh, has never laid that divinity aside. Such a confession of faith is sufficient to show that the Spirit inspiring is from God. The fundamental Christian doctrine, which never can be compromised, concerns the eternal divine human person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the contrary, on verse 3 here of John, let's go back there, is also truth, that every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus, it is not from God. This is in the mind of John that can mean only one thing, namely to confess him as Christ has come in the flesh. To deny this, whatever the claim to inspiration may accompany the denial, accompany the denial is to reveal the working of the spirit of the Antichrist, which John's readers had heard, no doubt from himself in the previous teaching, they were coming. In verse uh, chapter two eighteen says that this is the last hour, and this spirit of the Antichrist is already coming. He is here, and he's deceiving people. Not only does the Antichrist precede the coming of the true Christ, but his spirit is even now already in the world. He's not disclosed for people to see, but we see his teachings. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 3, 8 through 8, we won't go there, but um, it speaks of the men of lawlessness, this Antichrist that is still to be revealed and the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. God is restraining it to a point, but it is already here through false doctrine. Now, as we compare both the passage in chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, and now in chapter 4 here, it is helpful for us to observe that there is a difference in emphasis. In chapter 2, our confession or denial of the Son determines whether we possess the Father or not. Now, in chapter 4, he's saying, our confession or denial of the Son indicates whether we have the Spirit or not. The person of Christ is central. 
No system can be tolerated, however loud it claims, for it, it's learned from its followers, which denies that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. In other words, either, um, either his, central, his eternal deity or his historical humanity is true or it is not. Those who deny the Son have neither the Father nor the Spirit. Simply put, whoever denies the basic truths of the gospel, this is what John is saying here. This is basic truths of the gospel. It's basic to believe that Jesus came in the flesh to save sinners, to die in our place, and to be resurrected. So this revised gospel that the false teachers were presenting is in fact no gospel at all. The gospel starts with the basic facts about what God has done. Jesus is the Son of God. He has come in the flesh. He died. He rose again. And he's alive today. He's coming again. These are facts. No amount of philosophical or theological theorizing will change these basic facts of the gospel. They may want to talk about this new theology as it happened in the beginning of the 20th century or the myth of a God incarnate. You know, it was only apparent that he was God, but he wasn't really God. A heresy that came in the 70s. But unless their gospel starts with the basic facts about what God has done, they're, all, they're no gospel at all. It might be that the heresy of Gnosticism, this doctrine that they claim the superior knowledge from God, but they denied that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. It's no longer in the church today, but maybe there is a, another threat and that is the pluralism in salvation. Every now and then we hear so-called evangelical coming out and claiming that Christianity is not the only way, only way to salvation. They say that Christianity is one way of salvation, but not the only one. Someone can come through Christ, to Christ through Islam or Catholicism or Mormonism. They believe in many ways that Christ is exclusive. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. I find this helpful in this article by Leslie Newburn. He, he writes, the gospel is news of what has happened. The problem of communicating it in a pluralistic society is that it simply disappears into the indifferentiated ocean of information. It represents one opinion among millions of others. It cannot be the truth. Since in a pluralistic society, there is not one truth, but many. What is true for you cannot be true for everyone. What is true for you is not true for me. So truth is now all relative. According to scripture, there is only one truth. To claim that it is true for everyone is simply arrogance, the society says. It is permitted as one opinion among many. I think that is the threat that the church today faces, is to really keep the exclusivity of the gospel. So how do we know that we can discern truth from error? We stick to the gospel, to the message of scripture. 
to God's revealed will. Now, we're moving on to our last point here. There's actually a comfort for us, for those who believe that we don't need to be afraid that we're going to be deceived. There is a promise. Verse 4, he says, You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Now that we have seen the need for a spiritual discernment and how to exercise it, we receive great comfort in knowing that those who are genuine believers have been given by God this spiritual discernment. Note how John now turns from a consideration of the teachers. He's talking about they and them. And now he's speaking about you. He turns to you. The message is uh, their message through an examination of the audience which listens to them. John is quite confident that all will be well with his friends in Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus. He encourages them by telling them so. He tells them that you know, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. John tells them that they do have the truth. Christians can be intimidated by the boastful claims of false prophets. We have knowledge, said the ancient Gnostic. Many weak Christians are inclined to believe them. Boastful claims to possess knowledge were as common in the ancient world as they are now. But John says, don't let yourself be intimidated by these Gnostics claiming a superior knowledge. I, I remember when I was in college, oh, we have this special revelation here. We have this special um, insight into the human nature. We have these studies. We have the science, pseudoscience, to claim to understand what man is and what, who God is. Don't let yourself be intimidated. You are of God. It is not those Gnostics who have the knowledge of God. It is you. That's what John is saying here. Actually, John should not have needed even to say this. They had the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and deep within they knew that they were right. Though the modern knowledge can be very intimidated for some, they need to be reminded that the truths of the gospel are sufficient to keep us from deception. This is all we need to protect us from error. This is sticking to the gospel, to the truth that was preached to us. John states referring to every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. These are the one that overcomes the false teacher. The them here is referring to the false prophets from verses 3. This overcoming is not so much moral. You know, I see a lot of people talking about this. Oh, you will have, we'll overcome the world. We'll face the giants. We'll, we'll overcome sin. This is not what John is talking about here. He's talking more about a, an overcoming of an intellectual level. This knowledge that is superior to the worldly knowledge. Because he's primarily talking about doctrine. What John is saying here is that the false teachers have not succeeded in deceiving the Ephesians. 
So much so, what happened to them, what we read in chapter 2, they left. They left the church. Not only have you tested them and found them wanting, but you have conquered them by decisively, decisively repudiating their teaching. You have not succumbed to their flatteries and believed their lies. You have overcome them. That's what John is saying. No doubt they had found themselves obliged to depart. They just they couldn't do anything against the truth, so they just left. And the cause of their victory is the superior strength of the one who is in you. This must be the spirit of truth, as in verse 6 says, we are of God, and he who knows God listens to us. And it says that by this we know the spirit of truth. This is the spirit of truth. Although it is, impl- is implied here that the evil spirit is great, it's, it is implied here that it is great. The Holy Spirit is even greater. The one who is in us is even greater. And by his illumination, all false teaching may be overcome. As we read in chapter 2, verses 18, this protection against falsehood and victory over it are ascribed both to an objective standard of doctrine and the indwelling spirit. So we don't need to be wondering what is truth and what is not. God has declared to us in the scripture everything that we need to know. I mean, we have been studying this past few weeks in our equipping hour. How can we make wise decisions? Should we need to be wondering what God's will is for us? No, he has revealed to us. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have the truth in his scripture. It's not that we have a superior knowledge within ourselves. We have the spirit that teaches in his word what is truth and what is error. This protection against falsehood and victory over it are ascribed to both the objective truth of doctrine and the indwelling spirit that opens our minds to understand and to grasp and to apply it. Calvin said once, unless the spirit of wisdom is present, there is little or no profit in having God's word in our hands. You see, it's not sufficient that someone would have the Bible, would have the scripture. We need the spirit to open our understanding and to illuminate so that we might believe and understand it. All true Christians possess this incorruptible seed of eternal life, as Peter says, meaning that no satanic deception can take them out of God's saving hand. John 10 says that no one can deceive, no one can take them from the hands of the Father. Those truly born again have been given not only a supernatural insight into the truth, but a love for it as well. This discernment protects people from apostasy, from being deceived. Let's open our Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I think it will be a helpful passage here as we see... So we know that false teaching has always a spirit behind it. There is either the spirit of error or the spirit of truth. It's either the Holy Spirit 
enabling people to understand the truth where there is a wisdom that comes from false teaching. And that's what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Remember that John was talking about that those false teachers speak of the world and the world listens to them? But we don't have that spirit of the world. We have the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 10 says that God revealed to us the things that he wanted us to know through the spirit which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So human philosophies, false doctrine, all of that comes from the world, comes from human wisdom, from rationalizations, from a faulty logic. And and it says in verse 14, but a natural man, a person that does not have the Spirit of God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Have you ever talked to an unbeliever and you, you, you explain it to them and it's so clear and you're like, you're crazy. <laughs> you're nuts. Why is that? It doesn't make sense to them because God has to open their understanding. It's not, it's not that we're smarter, that we're better, has nothing to do with intellectual knowledge or ability. It has everything to do with the Spirit being able to open their understanding to truth and to error. Paul says, For a natural man does not accept things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They're discerned. They're different. But he who is spiritual appraises or discerns all things, and yet he himself is not discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is a comfort for us. That God will not allow us to be deceived when we take his word at his face value and the Spirit opens our understanding. Now we can go back to our text here. Verses 5 and 6 um, complements this teaching. John says, They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are of God. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. These two verses are complementary. In, the, in them, John contrasts the striking fashion not only in the false prophets, but the true apostles. They and we. The different audiences who listen to them, namely the world and whoever knows God, this is the audience. It's either the world or Whoever knows God, the world recognizes its own people and listens to their message, which originates in its own circle. It reflects their perspective, their, their worldview, their understanding of life. 
John declares that the divine orange of his Christian readers, as he is particularizing here, they listen to we. Now, I want you to pay attention to who is he talking about here? Is he referring just to himself? He's referring to his readers? Who is this we here in, in this passage? Because he could be quite, quite prideful, it sounds like it, right? Or if you don't listen to us, you're not of us. All right, if, if, if someone would say that, I would think they're very prideful. Also, you, that's what all the cults and, and, and weird religions that we see there, right? If they say, well, if you don't listen to them, you, you, if you don't listen to me, their leader, you're not one of us. Now, it is helpful for us to understand who is we here. If you go to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, who is he talking about here? We know for sure that it is not the false teachers because he made a clear distinction. They are from the world and those belong to God. In chapter 1, John starts to say, here's how what I'm writing here, the things that we're writing about, what was from the beginning, what we heard. Who is we here? The apostles, the disciples. Why, why I'm saying this? What we heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus Christ, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested to us, what we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking specifically here of eyewitnesses, people that leave, lived with Jesus when he was here on earth, people that touched him. Remember when he was risen and Thomas came and touched his side? So he's specifically talking about here, referring to the apostles and to the disciples that were eyewitnesses. And really, this is the doctrine of the apostles. They were the only ones that witnessed those events, that saw the resurrection, they touched, they lived, they experienced, and they have the authority to say, this is truth. We're not talking about a fantasy world here. We're talking about true events, historical facts in Jesus' time. Now, it is different from you and I to say, if you don't follow me, you're not of us. But for John to say, if you are not with us, with this doctrine, with this given by the apostles, those that came directly given by Jesus Christ, you're not from us. That's what uh, the Apostle Paul is saying here, this distinction. This is what John says, for he is writing in the name neither of himself nor of the church, but of Christ as one of his chosen apostles. John is referring to his fellow apostle because he used the word you when talking about the Christians in Ephesus in verse 4. And as we saw in the beginning of the letter, this we uh, means that the apostle John and his fellow apostles, his colleagues who were eyewitnesses of the events in Christ's coming. 
We must remember that John's message did not begin simply with the claims of an interior revelation. It began with something outside, something anyone can investigate. What was from the beginning, what we heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at, what we touched with our hands. All this is consistent with John's repeated emphasis that the safety from error is to be found in loyalty to that which his readers had and what they already heard. The identity of us is the phrase, whoever knows God listens to us, cannot be understood as a church or the papacy. So the Roman Catholic Church, you got this verse here, and they say, you know, this is referring to the Roman Catholic Church. Whoever doesn't listen to the Roman Catholic Church, they do not belong to God. Actually doing violence to John's insistence in this letter that he is referring to the apostolic doctrine to those that were eyewitnesses of Christ. No pope, no religious person have been an eyewitness of Christ. Quite apart from the historical question whether the consensus of Christian opinion has been a reliable criteria of the truth, the New Testament prophets were always subordinate to the apostles' teaching. They never came up with something new other than what we already had. On the other hand, those of the world does listen to them they're false teachers. John is saying that here they speak of the world. Their gospel is worldly. The Gnostics may have great intelligence. In our days, there are those, there are scholars, people that claim to have a special knowledge. They have many followers. People flock to them to drink from their teachings because they make them feel good about themselves. The whole enterprise is worldly. It is trying to combine human research, human philosophy, human ideas with the gospel of God. The result is that the gospel is covered up. It's only man-made ideas left. The one and only gospel is supernatural. It begins with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The God coming flesh. It is supernatural. Now, John carries this argument a little further in this verses here to say that um, the spirit who is in you enables you to discern his own voice is speaking through us. He's not going to speak anything else other than the revealed will of God. Remember that Jesus said that he, the spirit is going to teach you everything that I have commanded you. So he's going to teach what he has commanded us. He's not going to give us He's not going to bring to memory anything that we haven't read in the scripture. That's why it's so important for us to be in the truth, to be every day, you know, as far as we have time and we, we, we need to make time for that, to know the truth, because the Spirit is going to use that to help us to discern error from the truth. I wanted to conclude our message today with um, an interesting passage in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 22. It's an interesting story that illustrates this whole thing of the spirits of error and the spirits of, of deception and the spirit of God, the spirit of truth. We have a story of an interesting guy in, that I really appreciate. His name is Micaiah. Micaiah. It's not very well-known. 
uh, prophet in the Old Testament. But um, the context here, we have two kings, you know, king of um, Israel, Ahab was an ungodly king, a man that did not know the world, did not know the word, did not know God. He was of the world. Um, his wife was Jezebel, wicked person. And then we have a godly king, Jehoshaphat, the, God, uh, the king of Judah. And the two of them are preparing to go in a war to conquer a territory. Now, I, I seriously think there is already a, a red flag here. Jehoshaphat, this godly king, walking with a wicked king. You know that something is not going to go wrong, not going to go right. And then Jehoshaphat, you know, as a godly king, um, verse 4 here, he says, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, and my people as your people. My horses are your horses. He's saying, we're going to go to war. We're going to fight this war. We're going to conquer this territory. But then Jehoshaphat, as a godly king, he says, verse 5, said to the king of Israel, please inquire first of the word of the Lord. We need guidance. We need the Lord to, to, to show us, should we do this? We shouldn't go on our own strength. Well, Ahab, obviously, he's an ungodly king. He doesn't care about what God says. He has his own prophets, 400 of them. If you read in verse 6, it says, Then the king of Israel gathered prophets together, about 400 men, that would tell him only what he wanted to hear. And said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, what? Go up, for the Lord will, be into, will deliver into your hand the king. And then Jehoshaphat, the godly king, is like, oh, I don't really trust this. I don't know these people. I don't know if they really know God. As he said, is there, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord. He knew that those prophets were not of God. Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And I can only imagine Ahab just scratching his head. He knew there was one. He knew there was only one. He says, there is yet one man we may inquire of the Lord. But I don't like him. In fact, I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He's Micaiah. I don't like him. This is our word today, isn't it? They don't like to hear God's word being preached to them. They want to hear whatever they want to hear. So I think it's interesting. I'm going to skip this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But Micaiah goes on, and then you know they invite the prophets. And they come and already tell him, Micaiah, you know, 400 people are telling them, go to war. You can't say that they shouldn't go. You should tell them they should go to war. It's 400 against one. You don't want to lose this. Your life, your life is at line here. And then Micaiah does go in, in the sense of irony here. Verse 16, 15, he says, go up and succeed and the Lord will give you into the hand of the king. And then the king knows, right, that he never speaks anything good of him. He says, how many times must I adjure you to speak nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he said, you want the truth? I saw all Israel was scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. 
And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each one return to the house in peace. Well, actually, the king gets angry. He says, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good thing concerning me but evil? Well, God later opens the curtain and Micaiah tells him, well, God told me what happened was this spirit came out. Um, here in verse 21, then the spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him, I will entice Ahab. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. 400 men deceived by an evil spirit, and yet there was one man being true to preach what God wanted him to preach. Even though he didn't know that wasn't pleasing, it wasn't comfortable, but he was faithful to teach that. I think the Lord has given us faithful men that preach the word, that is faithful to the doctrine of the apostles, and this is what we need to listen. The truth that God gives has no shadow of doubt. I appreciate Micaiah to be a faithful prophet to preach those words. And we need to be comforted that God has given us his spirit to understand his words and to proclaim his words. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you with the confidence, not in ourselves, Lord, who are we? We're of little account. We're nothing. But yet, Lord, you, you decided to reveal yourself to us through your word, and we're so comforted that you have given us discernment to know what is truth and what is error. Lord, keep us from being foolish in associating with those with false doctrine. And we not, might not be like Jehoshaphat, associating and, and compromising the truth. May we listen, Lord, to your words that are faithful and true. Give us confidence to speak to others that if these are not our words, but your own, the word of salvation through Christ Jesus, the word of redemption and transformation that can only come through the person of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Give us boldness, God. We need that boldness. Not of ourselves, but in the spirit that lives in us, the spirit that is not from this world, but the spirit that is from God. And as we listen to our sweet shepherd, the Lord Jesus, we hear his voice, his voice and we hear his instructions to obey. Well, help us, Lord. Bless our time of fellowship and our going out and uh, protect us and guide us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.